Warning, being a boss is lonely. Should we not try to liberate the bosses of the world by creating a participatory economy? Are you serious? So I told her that's too much milk for one person. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. We are your hosts, The Wrong Boys, Sean and Aaron. My name is Sean. My name is Aaron. And this is a podcast about how everyone can have as much milk as they want. I agree. Yeah, there's no, no other thoughts you have on milk amounts? Well, I, you know, there is a limit. Just to be honest, there is a limit. For one person, yeah, there's a limit. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're taking so much milk that you don't drink it all and it spoils, that would be bad. Maybe if just you're drinking so much that it negatively affects your health, too. That's a different level of bad. It's more just personal, but, you know, you probably shouldn't do that. Right, well, I, I could even go even fully high road here. Like, if you look into the vegan critique of milk from cows, pretty compelling. Like, most milk does not come from, like, a process that you'd want to watch happen true i that's why i don't look into it no i mean i have the vegan perspective is that any amount of milk cow's milk is too much for one person but anyways that's not the subject of today's episode no yeah that we try to prevent that kind of spill over usually and you can't cry over spilled milk i i would say if you're feeling devastated over your spilled milk let it out cry might as well <laughs> You know what? I agree. It's hard to make a generalization about crying vis-a-vis spilled milk that would apply in all circumstances. It's an old saying. Um, I think I agree with the spirit of the saying. The spirit of the saying is good, yes. But when it comes to every individual instance of someone crying over spilled milk, then yeah, it can really be a valid concern. And sometimes a little thing can sort of push you over the edge. So the big question is what's really going on in this person's life? If spilled milk is making you cry, then it's probably a sign that there's more than just the spilled milk affecting you at the time. Yeah, and if there isn't, it might be something like brain chemistry wise or something like if you can't think of any other life events that are kind of coming out in the crying of the you're like oh the milk just one thing too many if you're like my life was perfect up until the spilled milk and it made me like sob uncontrollably it might be like emotional regulation issues if you can't think of any other reasons you're crying but again yeah emphatically not the subject of today's episode oh but i I also did want to say sorry on before we leave that subject behind in the rearview mirror Some people really do care about milk, so they may cry if they spill it, just based on the milk alone, based on the level of passion for the milk. It's totally possible. Yeah, or it's like your only calories that you have left, or like you were, it it was milk for your baby that you had in, you were heated it up for the baby. It was the last milk, baby's hungry. Right, you're a single mother, you're waiting, there's not a lot of money, you know, the baby's relying on that milk, and then you want nothing more than to give the baby what it wants and to give it that milk, and you spill the milk. Yeah, that could be devastating by itself without even 
any sort of other issues that could be the one issue that really makes Absolutely. you cry over spilling that milk yeah yeah but in general i think the saying is meant to say it's kind of like what's in your sphere of control and letting things go that you can't help anymore like you can't put the spilled milk back in the carton safely anyway and drink it again so it's like you know let it go that's it's a good saying just like <laughs> yeah we should <laughs> can't put the spilled milk back in the carton and drink it again safely words to live by because you could put it back in the, like you could you could like sweep it into a dustpan and then pour it back but that would be what saying doesn't need to be technically correct I mean, our whole issue with the first saying was that it wasn't. So I feel like if we're going to offer a replacement, it probably should be. Yeah, but sayings, they also can't be too long. I only added one word, safely. Right. No, no it's your saying, ultimately. It came from you. Thank you. I identified it. I, I, picked that out of the, <laughs> I picked that out of the air. Hey, that's a saying. Yeah, I just said it. I didn't say it as a saying. I was just saying it to say. And you said, that's a saying. So imagine this whole conversation has been happening sort of on camera one, and now we're turning to like camera three to indicate a change. Of right. Like, now we're getting down to business. And like, you know, when yeah, you're we're putting away the milk and we're taking out Michael Albert and Paracon and No Bosses, his book. And we're putting the milk somewhere where it'll stay cool so it doesn't spoil. <laughs> so that was back on camera one again. We just went back for and then now we're going back to camera three. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some European countries, they do have more preservatives in milk and they tend to keep it in like the pantry instead of the fridge but right here in north america you put it in the fridge generally well it's good we covered all that with apologies to michael albert this is <laughs> <laughs> so yeah today on the show we've got a great interview with michael albert he's one of the theorists behind the concept of participatory economics along with robin hanel he's the author of a number of books including pericon life after capitalism practical utopia strategies for a desirable society and most recently no bosses which is what we're going to be talking about today you know he's been politically active since maybe the late 60s pericon was based on ideas that started being developed in the early 70s so he's got a lot of experience he's been thinking about this longer than i've been alive and his work focuses on thinking through sort of like practical implementations of a post-market post-capitalist society i've found engagements with pericon intellectually for me to be really stimulating and valuable it's a way of thinking of a democratic horizontally oriented economy that's built on participation by not just a small group of people who are sort of owners and rulers but by everyone or by all working people. So I really value that. Yeah, likewise. I've been aware of and engaged in different aspects of the sort of Paracon web of ideas for quite a while now. And like, I always just appreciate people who are trying to think through new systems and new ways of organizing people along directly democratic lines in social and economic aspects of life. I feel like people not having a say over their lives and over the economy that their lives are enmeshed in and the society that their lives are enmeshed in is one of the biggest problems with the way things are set up right now. And I think that while it's hard to design an entire system as a thought experiment in a series of books, even over the course of decades or a lifetime, Michael Albert and the people at Paracon have done a really good job at laying out one such system. And I think that having these ideas lying around for people to pick up and use in real world applications, which people do with some of the things with Paracon, like you can put them into practice at one workplace, uh, some of the aspects of it. I think this kind of stuff is really, really valuable. 
So yeah, a couple of weeks back, I had a chance to read through No Bosses, uh, which is Michael Albert's new book. Um, and then we had a conversation with Michael Albert about it. I feel like there's ideas that are shared here that no matter your sort of political tendency or background, there's things here that you can really grapple onto and take with you. I really got some value out of this conversation. And I hope you enjoy it as well. Before we roll the tape, gotta say, as usual, the show is funded by our listeners on Patreon. It makes a huge difference if you can donate to the show. Uh, we are a small, independent, you know, it's just the two of us. Uh, we get some help uh, from our friend Franz or Carol as well sometimes on editing now. And we've been able to do that because we get donations and memberships in our community. Uh, so for $6 a month, you can get access to bonus episodes, the occasional live stream, and our entire back history going back hundreds of episodes way back into the ancient times of 2014 when we started the show. So there's, yeah, lots of content if you like what we do and you want to support the show there's no better way to do it than by signing up as a, one of our beautiful geniuses on patreon at six dollars a month we really appreciate that and thank you to everyone who's already doing that the show would not exist into 2022 and beyond if it weren't for your help so thank you sincerely it's very very meaningful to us that we get the support we do we're an ad-free show completely listener supported and we will continue to be that way with your support so thank you so much uh, without further ado let's roll the tape here um, just put the put the tape in and yeah, there we go. Interview with Michael Albert for his new book, No Bosses. So first, thanks for uh, taking the time to speak to us today, Michael. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I wanted to ask to start, could you tell us maybe broadly about the vision of this book? You know, how can there be a workplace without bosses? Uh, and doesn't somebody need to be in charge? Okay, sure. The The book's idea, suppose you could say, is to try and present an alternative to what we currently endure as our economy called capitalism. Also an, an alternative to what has historically often taken the place of capitalism, which is either centrally planned or market sometimes called socialism, I think incorrectly. I like to call it coordinatorism. We'll see why as we go along. But anyway, the idea of getting rid of bosses is basically not premised on the evil of bosses, but rather on the virtue and the desirability of people self-managing their own lives rather than being bossed, told what to do, and submitting to the instruction without having any say or any influence. The answer to how you can do that is you have to replace bosses, in this case, initially owners, with something else. So No Bosses proposes not having private ownership of workplaces and resources and the things we utilize to create outputs that we enjoy. But once you get rid of that, your question immediately arises. Okay, so we don't have bosses getting all the profits, but that means we don't have owners also making the decisions. So what are you going to replace that with? And it is the logical next question. And the answer becomes, I think, if you believe in what we call self-management, which is people should have a say in decisions in the proportion to the degree that they're affected by them. So we should all have a say over the decisions that affect us. If you believe in that, well, it's certainly the case that workers inside a workplace are affected by the decisions that the owner used to make or that people who the owner hired for the purpose used to make. And so workers have to make those decisions, which means we have to establish what we call a workers' council, which includes all the workers. 
And then I think the impact of your question is, well, yeah, okay, but why should we think that workers are going to make good decisions? Why should we think that they're even in a position to make decisions or prepared to make decisions or inclined to make decisions or capable of making decisions? And they're perfectly fair questions because in our society, it's generally not the case. And the reason it's not the case is because their circumstances, the circumstances of about 80% of the workforce are such that they are disempowered. They are separated from the means of making and implementing decisions, but they're also separated from the information that you need to make a good decision. And they're separated from the confidence, the degree of empowerment, the degree of inclination to make decisions by virtue of really their whole life experience, but in particular, their position in the division of labor, doing rote labor, repetitive labor, obedient labor, About 20% of the workforce is empowered by their circumstances, at least to a degree. And those are the folks who capitalists utilize for making day-to-day decisions while the capitalists make the overarching ones. So getting rid of bosses means getting rid of both these encumbrances upon the total workforce and instead having all workers, all employees, be comparable in their role for decision-making. And that entails various changes, to be sure. For this, say, 80% of workers who aren't involved in these sort of day-to-day decisions, I guess the mythology would be that these people can't make these decisions, they're incapable of it, or that that even with education or access to training and stuff, that that is just beyond their pay grade. How would you respond to that? Like, it's a very common way that people see this sort of thing. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I think you're right. I have a number of ways that I answer it. One way is to say... Imagine it was 50 years ago, or imagine you have an eyeball view of 50 years ago. And suppose we put all the, I don't know, surgeons in a single stadium, and we look around, and we see what? Well, we see that the surgeons are male and white, overwhelmingly 50 years ago. And now we see that they're about 50% women, and actually the percentage of blacks is above the percentage of the blacks in the population, I think, as well. So we discover that people were capable But if you had asked people back 50 years ago who were in the stadium, why are they there? They would say, well, it's because we are capable of being surgeons and the people outside are not. And it isn't even just them who would say it. The people outside would largely say it. And it would be a possible answer. I mean, you could imagine that it was the case that the people doing surgery were all the people who are capable of surgery in society and People not doing it were incapable of it. And the same goes for making decisions. And so the answer that I would propose, and which I think is true, is that it's quite analogous that the people who are fulfilling what I'll call the working class jobs, the subordinate, the obedient, and the isolated from decisions jobs, are as they are, not somehow genetically, just like blacks and women weren't genetically 50 years ago, but rather by virtue of the conditions that they endure during their lives, the kinds of education that they get, and the kinds of on-the-job circumstances that they endure. Let me just give you one second way in which I tend to answer that question. About 20 years ago in Argentina, a great many factories were failing. And when many of those factories were failing, and this is lots, And when many of those factories were failing, the owner looked around and sort of said to him, generally himself, I got to get out of here. And they did. 
they basically left the factory. Then when they left, most of the people in the 20% of the empowered jobs left also because they thought, well, without the owners, this is going to hell in a handcart. It's already failing. I got to move on. And the 80% of workers still were there and they didn't have the option to move on. So they basically began to operate these factories. And they did it successfully. And I spent considerable time talking to people in those workplaces. And as just but one example, I was talking to a woman who had before worked at an open furnace. It was a glass factory. It was a factory that created glass objects. And she was working at a furnace. She would do that all day, incredibly hot, incredibly repetitive, incredibly rote, et cetera, et cetera. When the workers took over the workplace, she volunteered to do the finances, believe it or not. Nobody wanted to do it. She volunteered to do it. And I was talking to her months later, and she was doing it. And I asked her, what was the most difficult thing that you had to learn to do this? After all, you, you know, you weren't doing it before. And she didn't want to tell me. And we talked about it. And I kept asking. And I finally started giving her options. I said, well, was the hardest thing uh, learning accounting concepts? She said, no. So it was the hardest thing learning to use a spreadsheet. No. Was the hardest thing learning to, to make a presentation, to convey the situation to others? No. I said, well, I, I give up. What was the hardest thing? And she said, first, I had to learn to read. So, so much for incapacity. It's not incapacity. It is having been trounced by a social system, just as it was women having been trounced and other communities, you know, uh, not participating in decision-making having been trounced. So I think the answer to the question, and it's the same question somebody like Margaret Thatcher would put, is no, we're not losing quality by changing the way we organize society so that everybody has a circumstance, and in work that means a change in the division of labor, to be able to participate, to be able to help make decisions, we're gaining capacity because we're no longer taking 80% of the population and denying its capacity and not utilizing its capacity. And I guess I would have to say to somebody, if you think that's not the case, you should seriously consider whether it's possible that the reasons you think that are because it's common sense knowledge as compared to because you've thought about it and you've considered the possibility that the people who are doing rote work aren't able only to do work, rote work, but are instead squashed until their circumstances are such and their confidence is such and their knowledge is such that they appear only able to do that rote work. That's a really interesting point to think about all the people who are not given the opportunities to build their capacities in these ways. They're actually denied the opportunity to, and then a participatory economic lens to the workplace would give them increased opportunities to actually achieve a variety of potentials that they would want to. It's not even just, that would be bad enough, right? But it's not even just that they don't get the opportunity. It's that they are stifled. That is to say, well, think of public education now. What, what's going on in education? Well, roughly 20% of the people who go to school are getting a degree of education and a degree of confidence to be able to participate in the economy with a degree of decision-making. Um, but 80% are learning to endure boredom and take orders. And if 
your audience remembers its days in high school and junior high school, I think they'll realize that they were in one group or the other. They were being channeled in some sense. And so, you know, one group is sort of into school and is working at it. And the other group, you know, it's uh, five minutes to three and the school day ends at three, let's say. That tells you how old I am. And the school day ends at three. And at five minutes to three or 10 minutes of or whenever, they're sort of looking at the clock and praying to get out. But they're sitting there. And so they're doing two things. They're enduring boredom and they're obeying. They're taking orders and they're obeying. And those are the two things that you can't not do. You cannot do well on a test, but you can't violate instructions and, uh, you know, become fidgety. That's what you, what you get punished for. And it carries over into the workplace because in the workplace, we have what's called a corporate division of labor. And if we're talking about no bosses, the economy, we should mention that. So we're talking about in the workplace, about 20% of the workers are doing tasks that have empowerment qualities. They convey information. They convey access to decision-making levers. They generate a, a certain degree of alertness, if you will, and of confidence and of skill. And about 80% are doing tasks that are disempowering. That's the way the jobs have been defined. They don't have to be that way. That's the way they've been defined. So the 20% are monopolizing the empowering circumstances and 80% are enduring the disempowering circumstances. And then you naturally get the rate, the result that you get. And just to go back to that Argentine example, when the workers took over those workplaces, about six months later, I was in a room with about 50 of them and I was supposed to give a talk. And at the beginning, I tell this story over and over because it's so instructive, I think. It was instructive for me. Um, I, at the beginning, everybody's very exciting. They're meeting people from across Argentina who are in similar situations to them. Factories that they've occupied, workplaces that they've occupied. And so, you know, there's a lively mood in the place. And we start up and I say, let's go around the room for a little while and people can tell what their situation is. And the mood turns less excited less energetic, and then slowly but surely depressed. And the seventh person to speak said, and this was reiterating, but more eloquently perhaps than some of the ones who had went before, I never thought I would say anything like this. I, I can't imagine that I would say anything like this, but maybe Margaret Thatcher was right. Maybe there's no alternative. We took over the workplace. We made incomes fair. For the most part, we all earned the same deviations we agreed to. We instituted democracy for decision-making in our workers' council. And now all the old crap is coming back. And so I finally stopped it after seven such reports. And I said, and you, you feel that, tell me if this is the case, you feel that this is because basically of human nature. This is basically a product of who we are that all the old crap and the alienation and the hierarchy is coming back is due to something in, in yourselves. And they said, yes, that's what they were afraid of. And so then we talked about the fact that that wasn't the reason. The reason was when they took over the factory, they retained the old division of labor. So they, they retained the situation in which 20% of them were doing more empowering tasks. And as time went along, the 20%, and they were just workers like all the other workers, they had backgrounds like all the other workers, but the circumstances they enjoyed in the changed workplace were such that they began to see themselves as more important. And in a very real sense, they were more important because they were doing 
the empowered work. And they began to make decisions that were in the interests of themselves, and they thought they were deserving, and all the old crap was coming back. It's an example of how institutions work. It isn't even just this institution. This is an institution called the Corporate Division of Labor, and it has implications regardless of the will of the people. None of them wanted that to happen, but it is what happened. And it's because it's intrinsic to the institution. It's built into the dynamics and what it causes people to do and requires of people. So that's one of the things that no bosses or that participatory economics, which is the name of the system no bosses proposes, uh, proposes. It, that is what's called balanced job complexes, which is that we, do, we redefine jobs. We define jobs in such a way that everybody does a fair mix of empowering and disempowering work and activity, and so that everybody is comparably prepared to participate in workplace decision-making. I find this framing so interesting and valuable, the 80% versus the 20%, because when you think about like kind of traditional Marxist or just leftist economic ideas and thinking about owners of the means of production versus laborers, a lot of people look at the current situation of the world and say, oh, that doesn't really map on. You know, we have doctors and lawyers and the professional managerial classes and like people could theoretically get a job at a place and move up into management and maybe end up in some decent middle, like the distance between that 80 and 20 is there but seems smaller or the, the idea that it's smaller that you can move between them makes the class stratification seem less rigid for some people uh, or at least in terms of the justification of the system but i think talking about that division and not putting everything on like the one percent of the one percent 99.9% division, which I think is real also. But yeah, I, I think it's it's an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The analysis of the impact of the institution of private property is basically valid, right? It's basically true. Bezos is, you know, a capitalist of the utmost power and his power is incredible and it's way more than the power of a of a line manager of a doctor of a lawyer etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's true so in essence what we have is between what we understood as capital and what we understood as labor there's a third class and that third class matters because that third class has a different position than the other two is you know has its own interests and sometimes clashes with owners and sometimes virtually always, clashes with workers below, become the ruling class. And here's where it becomes, you know, in, in the ideologies, consequential. Because old-style Marxism, if you utilize it, there's many, many truths. But there are some serious inadequacies, and this is one. It basically gets you thinking in terms of owners and workers. But really, there's owners there's what I call the coordinator class, and there's the working class. And oddly enough, you can get rid of the owning class, you can overcome private property, eliminate private property as an institution, private property, private ownership of the means of production, and still have a ruling class, the coordinator class. And that's what those economies that were called 20th century socialism, market socialism, centrally planned socialism, sometimes they call them 
you know, even though there's no capitalists, they would call them state capitalists and so on and so forth. To me, there are economies in which the coordinator class has become the ruling class. And if you don't want that, uh, which I don't think we should, uh, then you have to change the division of labor, not just ownership relations. You also have to change allocation relations because those have an adverse effect also. Considering, as came up before, people are sort of indoctrinated in this hierarchical obey and command kind of ideology from childhood and where they fit in this sort of spectrum is something that's ingrained in them through not just arguments, but through experience. How do we, when we're looking to sort of like revolutionize the workplace and have these worker complexes that break from this really commonsensical thing, there's like an education piece to it because like you said, the old crap can come back. Right. How do we address that really fundamental question? And so many people have these strongly held commonsensical views that maybe they've never even like evaluated or thought about critically, but they have so much experience with. Yeah, it, there's an irony to it because, how do I put this? I, I once taught in prison and I was able to teach whatever I wanted, wanted. And I was teaching about the system capitalism that we endure, racism, sexism, and so on. And when I would talk about owners, there was no particular animation in the class, right? It, it, it wasn't provoked um, uh, a high level of emotional response. But when I started talking about the coordinator class, which none of them had ever heard talked about by somebody before, uh, there was plenty of animation and plenty of emotion. And the reason is because working people, they experience the coordinator class as arrogant, as paternalistic, and as demanding and, and instructive, so to speak. But they don't experience owners personally. They never encounter them. So the, the class consciousness that working people have, meaning people who are doing these disempowered roles, the class consciousness that they have is often more hostile toward what they see as this empowered group, this empowered coordinator class group, doctors, engineers, accountants, and so on. And that plays a big role in society, because if you think about why was there such a strong antipathy to Hillary Clinton, say, to give one of many examples? Well, it's partly because she was a woman. That's true. But I think it was also very significantly because she comes across as and feels like a representative of this coordinator class, regardless of what she really is. And in the same way, Trump or the Bushes come across as somebody you could have a beer with, somebody who doesn't come across as arrogant toward you and as hostile toward you, even though in reality, of course, he was vastly worse. But he doesn't come across that way. Okay, so my point here is, that the problem that you're pointing out, which is that if we're going to create a new kind of economy, which really has classlessness, which really gets rid of these class divisions, then we have to develop movements that are sensitive to them and that empower working people instead of maintaining the coordinator class folks on top. It's not a question of hating them or anything. It's not a question of doing away with their what. In other words, where they get their power from is a monopoly on empowering tests and empowering roles. You're not getting rid of those. We're getting rid of private ownership, but we're not getting rid of the tasks that the coordinator class does. We're reapportioning the tasks. And so a movement that's going to make headway on this is going to have to be able to, hard as it may seem, express the ideas, not 
unduly polarize the empowered sector of society now. You don't want to turn them into rabid enemies. You want them to be in the movement, but you don't want the movement to cater to them. You don't want the movement to elevate them. You want the movement to empower working people and to reflect working class values and working class aspirations, not those of, you know, Yale Law School. And so that's the kind of thing that you have to that you have to have embodied in movement culture, and then you have to make demands. And you have to fight for changes in a sequence that leads toward fighting for a whole new situation. So in a workplace, you might fight for, or you might just create workers' councils. You might just start meeting. You might start discussing what would it mean for us to be making these decisions instead of the manager who doesn't know where we're coming from and doesn't know our values and doesn't take into account our capacities, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can start making decisions, I mean, making demands about the workplace that speak to the disproportionate amount of influence and power and circumstance and so on. And we're actually starting to see some of that, I think. But that's the kind of path that you'd have to travel to get to a socialism, a participatory economy that wasn't dominated by a subset of the employed people, by the coordinator class. Do you see this trajectory towards this uh, empowerment economy being something that is prefigurative, where uh, it's done like a single firm at a time, kind of here and there, and and competes within the existing economy? Or does there need to be a more fundamental transition or revolution, for lack of a better word? Well, it's certainly... A revolution. That is, if we say, take some other sphere of life, take uh, the political or the kinship. If you fundamentally transform the defining institutions, to me, that's what a revolution is. A revolution isn't hoopla. It's not violence. It's not, you know, it might contain hoopla, or it might even contain violence. But what makes something a revolution is that it has fundamentally transformed the defining relations. And we're talking about fundamentally transforming the defining relations. We're talking about getting rid of private ownership of means of production and having a productive commons. We're talking about getting rid of the corporate division of labor and having what we call balanced job complexes, jobs that are comparably empowering for everyone. We're talking about getting rid of remuneration, that's your income, remuneration for bargaining power or for property, and instead having it be for just how long you work, how hard you work, and the onerousness of the conditions under which you work, as long as you do socially valued labor. And that's just totally upside down. And we're talking about also getting rid of markets and or central planning and replacing it with participatory planning. So we're talking about a revolution. There is no way around that. Call it whatever you want. It's a fundamental transformation of the finding relations of the economy. But having that in mind, that doesn't mean that it happens overnight in a gigantic combustion, which moves from what we have now to what we want in a flash. That's just not the way history works. So it involves, does it involve prefiguring? Does it involve, in other words, planting the seeds of the future and the present, creating firms now from scratch or by taking them over that embody the values and the institutional forms that we seek to have? Yeah, it involves that. Does it also involve fighting for a sequence of changes inside workplaces, say, higher wages, a higher minimum wage, a lower defense budget, 
a degree of uh, responsibility for the workforce in making decisions and so on and so forth, all sorts of things that we can think of. Doesn't involve fighting for those things. Yeah, for two reasons. One, makes people's lives better now. Two, it's part of the process by which people become more confident, more aware, more committed, more organized to win further, to keep winning more changes. Does it involve electoral activity? Well, probably yes. In the United States, it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't. So it doesn't involve one thing and one thing only. It doesn't involve one moment and one moment only, or one year and one year only. It's a process which has many movable parts, and they work together, and they yield in time a fundamental transformation, in this case of the economy. Uh, Something I've often heard over the years, there's an idea that cooperative democratic forms of production and firms face disadvantages in the current marketplace when compared to, say, firms that are willing to burn through their employees, burn through the environment, and proceed forward in the pursuit of profit without ethics, and so on. So I wanted to ask, what hurdles along those lines do you think are most challenging to overcome, and how do we overcome them? Yeah, I think you're right. In other words, suppose you, I, and, I don't know, 50 or 100 other people want to set up a firm, and we want to have the firm work in, in the manner that we desire for the future economy. Well, there are some very real difficulties. One very real difficulty is the bank's not going to give us any capital. It's not going to give us any money to do it with. But let's say we find a way around that. So we find a way that we can set up the firm and we can get resources that we need and we can produce. And then you point out, rightly again, that if we concern ourselves with true costs and benefits, so in other words, we concern ourselves with the fact that what we're doing can pollute the neighborhood. And we don't want to do that. Markets don't take it into account. Everybody's operating on the market, not in the future, but now. And if other firms pollute to their advantage, in other words, they don't clean up their own garbage and they spew stuff because it's cheaper to do, well, then they can outcompete us when it comes time to sell stuff. That is, they can sell for a lower price. And you're absolutely right. Those are problems that make it hard to set up something that's really the future we desire in the present, despite the fact that it's working in the midst of a market system, which puts all kinds of pressures on it. How do you do that? Well, doing it entails that you be very committed and that you understand that you're doing something less lucrative for yourself than what you could be doing. That is to say, you could dump your crap on the neighborhood and thus have more surplus and distribute it among yourselves to your advantage. You have to be, I don't know what term to use, ethical on the one hand, politically informed and motivated by the the end goal that you desire on the other hand. That's if you're creating an institution like this. What if you're inside of a big, what if you're inside Amazon and you're a worker? Well, now it's different. Now, now you're fighting for um, higher wages. You're fighting for more control over the work time so that you don't have to go to the bathroom in a bottle because you don't have any moments, any time to get out of the truck. That's real. So if, if you're fighting for those changes, you don't care that you're reducing the profits of Bezos, or at least you shouldn't care. That should not enter your mind at all. What should enter your mind is improving the circumstances of yourself and 
and the workforce. So it's a different situation. And you're right that there are different problems in each case. You know, in the, in the, in the latter case, of course, you run the risk of getting fired and you run the risk of repression if you um, strike and so on and so forth. In the former case, you can't be fired because you're setting up your own business, your own uh, project. So you're not going to be fired because there's no owner above you. But on the other hand, you'll be outcompeted. So what does that mean? You might have a hard time paying wages compared to another operation. But I don't want to pay too bad a picture of that because it's also true that you will actually likely be more efficient except for crushing people. In other words, if if you say that to work somebody basically to death, which is sort of what you described, in other words, to force people to work so much that they're hurting, and of course the, the firm that we would create, UI and 100 other people would create, wouldn't do that. So to that degree, it's less productive. It gets less less output out of us than would be gotten out of us with Bezos at the top of us forcing us to work longer than we're willing to. But on the other hand, we'll work better in our firm. We'll work more creatively. We'll work with less sort of resistance because we're working for ourselves and maybe our community. And so it's not obvious, in fact. When we created South End Press decades ago, I believe we had a, a more productive publishing house than any mainstream publishing house, you know, of our size would have been. It's a playoff. We didn't work ourselves to death, but on the other hand, we worked much better and more creatively and more efficiently and more effectively um, because it wasn't a an owner or a manager forcing us to. It was us wanting to because we believed in our product and so on. So, you know, there's no one answer fits everything. Uh, different circumstances lead to different issues. Let me just uh, bring up one another thing that comes to mind from your question. Back when there was slavery, slave owners had an argument against abolitionists. The slave owners said to the abolitionists, this is true, the slave owners said to the abolitionists, you know, you guys are nuts. We are better than you. You hire wage slaves. You pay people and you control their workday. And we own people and control their workday. But there's a difference. Since we own the people, said the slave owners, right, we don't want to work them to death because then we lose the thing that we owned. So we actually have an interest in the well-being of the slave in the same way that we have an interest in the well-being of a tractor. This is what they would say. So in other words, we have to take into account that we've invested in this slave and we don't want to destroy them. Whereas you can just work your workers to death and replace them. And so you actually are harsher than we are. All right. The argument was wrong, but but it had a kernel of truth. It was wrong because, of course, being owned and owning people has dimensions that go well beyond, you know, what the slave owner was referring to. But if you confined yourself to the issues that the slave owner was confer- referring to, there was an element of truth to it. That just tells you how odious wage slavery is. The, the ownership of workplaces by capitalists, by owners who hire people to work for them under their command. Owners have a kind of authority. This is a part of Marxism, if you will, that has great validity. Owners have a kind of authority that Stalin never even dreamed of, 
right? Dictators never dream of it. So Bezos is determining, you know, when his employees can go to the bathroom or even if they can go to the bathroom. You know, they have to do it in their truck. Stalin never dreamed of having that kind of authority, you know, that kind of control over people's lives. Bezos has that for his workforce. It's a devilish, destructive system. And replacing it with a system in which there's a new ruling class shouldn't be our aim. Our aim should be to replace it with a system in which everybody is able to participate and fully have a self-managing say and get an equitable income and, uh, you know, enjoy a full life. We now go to a fry cook at Wrongburger in the middle of a long shift. Oh, God, this job sucks. Okay, I'll put fries into the oil and then I got to get the cheeseburgers oh, oh, out of there. boss the... here, boss coming in, everybody. Just stopping oh, by, see how everyone's doing. You know, you could grab those cheeseburgers with a little more pep in your step. One second, let me just hope those aren't burnt. Is that are they looking a little overdone? They're they're fine. Okay, maybe just make a new basket. I don't mean to micromanage, but for sure. Have you? When was the last time you did a a basket? Well, you see, my father built Wrong Burger from the ground up. Started his own company after having worked as a fry cook at a different burger place before that. So you and then I fries so long ago it was in a past life. I'm just saying, if you cook enough fries, you could move up in the company and become a manager, maybe even become the CEO one day. You know, who knows? Stranger things have happened. But my dad did that, so I don't have to. I mean, I did once, like when I, I remember <laughs> I was a little kid, and my dad brought me in, and he kind of shoved the fry cook who was there aside, and then he, I was too short to reach the basket, but he lifted me up, and I reached in and pulled the basket out one time. Oh, cool. As a child. That's like what I do. Yeah, so I feel like I relate to you, your struggle. It's interesting. I was thinking earlier when I was just kind of toiling, isn't it interesting how there's like 80% of the jobs are jobs like mine where I'm just doing these sort of like rote, repetitive tasks, usually for like low wages, we like sort of straining on the body and very mind numbing, like because there's so little creative, you know, participatory effort involved. It's really just like sort of like being a cog in a machine. Yes. That's how I like to think of you. And then there's 20% that are doing exclusively cognitive work, if at all, maybe just sometimes Could you just, maybe just be wiping the counter as right, you talk sure. to Sorry, me. Yeah. It's always be cleaning, you know, ABCs. Yeah. You got time to lean. You got time to clean. Yeah. Exactly. There's like 20% that much higher paying jobs that are like less onerous and it's more like a... Oh yeah, that's like my job. Yeah, exactly. And then those jobs are handed out. I mean, it might be bad enough they're handed out based on merit, but there's not even handed out on merit. It's handed out on a bunch of different random things, including like who you know. Yeah, I mean, merit's mixed in there. Right. No, yeah, merit's mixed in there. I don't... Sometimes... Yeah, it's just the way of the world. Some people are better at doing what I do, like me, and some people are kind of useless, like you. Or not useless, but marginally useful. I had sort of a totally random idea earlier. Mm. What if... I think that spot's clean enough. Maybe move to another spot. Right, yeah, absolutely, sir. Yeah. Yeah. What if we, like, instead of the current system, had, like, fair jobs where instead of being over-specialized with a group commanding and a group being commanded, there were, like, fair wages and fair distributions of work and workplaces, instead of being privately owned, would be collectively owned by the people who work in them. Things could be sort of, like, planned horizontally with the participation of everyone and we could develop the latent potentiality and like the 80% of workers like me, I'm just sitting here daydreaming, cleaning, keeping busy. There's lots of stuff to do more stuff than I could ever do, frankly, because we're understaffed. 
because of COVID. Oh, yeah. We're trying to hire more, but nobody wants to work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree these days. So, yeah, I don't know. You'd have like workers councils or whatever instead of private ownership. And you. So you're saying nobody would be in charge? Is just well, everyone council? would be in charge. Uh, I mean, people would be most in charge of the things that are immediately in their sphere. Too right? many cooks in the kitchen. And that's what I say. Well, it's not like it's not enough cooks in the kitchen right now. I'm pretty comfortable in the metaphorical kitchen of the offices above the kitchen that are making decisions no, I mean, for the actual kitchen. Sorry, I mean, in the literal kitchen, we don't have enough cooks. We're understaffed because of COVID. Yeah, but I mean, okay, so if you're saying the cooks in the actual kitchen should be with the metaphorical cooks in the kitchen of like who's making decisions and if there's too many cooks in the kitchen or whatever, too many decision makers, then aren't we going to have even more of an actual cook shortage? Like there will be even fewer cooks in the real kitchen. Like if you're, if I'm in the office a hundred percent of the time, just kicking back, making decisions. And then all of a sudden right. no, you come into the office. So yeah, you'll have to, as part of a balanced job complex that would involve you coming into the kitchen. Maybe you cooking sometimes. Well, I mean, I do come into like some, when to do some no, bossing or some telling. Helping or, keep, like, you know, when there's a big rush. Cleaning, as I say. Yeah, yeah. But you know, when there's a big rush yeah. and you, you're, watching youtube videos and sending us words of encouragement oh yeah because i don't want to bother you during the rush right like you gotta work really hard so i for you will sit in the office and watch youtube right. for and your we, benefit we appreciate the words of encouragement for sure but like for example during those rushes if we could have your because we're short-staffed like if we could have your help then doing what like just like directing and bossing or no and... like there's different things, you know, like more cashier, hands on bossing, bossing the cashier, cashier, drive through burger prep counter, keeping up with the fries. People do need bossing, but I just feel like no, sometimes a lighter it, touch is You're saying I would be in the kitchen, but not doing bossing, but you so do we, know I'm the son of the guy who founded the place, right? Yes. Okay. So I, I'm just confused then. Yeah. I'm lost. Like what is the connection between you not contributing in the workspace, more tedious work that needs to be done and who your dad is? Like, how does that follow? Well, when you own the place, you have to tell the people what to do because they will get confused otherwise. And when you own the place, you get to bestow next ownership usually. So people tend to give it to their kids a lot of the time. That's what happened with me. Actually, there was a big fight between me and my brother uh, about who would get it. And my dad kind of pitted us against each other. That's the way to get the best out of your boys. Yeah, exactly. And uh, boys. my brother actually died during one of the challenges. Big tragedy. It was an accident. Oh, I'm sorry. But, I'm so so sorry I kind of won by default. Was this recently or like a long time ago? Over a decade ago. I mean, I'm over it. I mean, I kind of won. So it was like, it was bittersweet. Yeah, still. Jeez. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, I've overcome a lot. You're absolutely right about that. Oh, just by the way, this has been really stimulating, interesting. Uh, I know you've been cleaning while doing it, but not doing a great job of cleaning while doing it. So just FYI, this kind of counts as your break today. You're not doing the best cleaning right now. You're kind of talking and thinking, which doesn't really help the food right. making. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, no, I'm just going to get back to work, but <laughs> I, no, I'm not going to argue with that. I usually I use my breaks usually to call my kid at home. Video conferencing, school from COVID, and just good to check in by myself right, all right. day. This has probably been much more stimulating for you than that, getting to talk to me and all. And, you know, people sometimes pay $25,000 a plate to get into fundraising events to rub elbows with people of my 
caliber. So, you know, you made a lot on this break. That's like $10,000 worth of elbow rubbing we just did, you and I. You know, if you keep working at this for a few more years, maybe we'll make you a supervisor. Thank you, sir. You've inspired me to work extra hard. I'll be watching YouTube videos in my office if you uh, if you need anything. Perfect. That's We wouldn't want your soft pink hands getting burned from the fry oil. Ha. <laughs> uh, yeah. Did you know transparent skin, origin of the term blue blood? Oh, that's... So it's fitting. That's really interesting, sir. Thank you. <sighs> what a fucking prick. And that was a fry cook at Wrong Burger talking to his boss. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Non-Participatory Economics. Are you tired of having too many relentless political choices in your workplace? Do you want your participation in society to be reduced to the role of someone who fulfills orders at work and makes consumer decisions at home? You're not alone. That's why we've invented non-participatory economics. It's a system where a very small group of people, about 20%, tells everyone else what to do, and the average person gets almost no burdensome input into the way things are run. Oh yeah, sounds like a good idea, but what if one of the decision makers makes a bad choice? You ever think of that? Your, your little utopian vision? The people at the top will be chosen by a complex web of systems, including who owns the firm. So by owning the firm, they've demonstrated a high level of administrative competence. So that prevents the vast majority of bad decisions being made. But I will admit, if I'm pressed, it's possible for them to make bad decisions. However, we just strongly believe that that's the right way to do things. So even if it does sometimes not work, it's worth trying. But yeah, but what if they came into their position not through competence, but luck or inheritance? Sounds good picking the most competent people, but what if it doesn't work out like that? The ownership of the workplace serves as a proxy for that. And it might not line up one to one, but it lines up at least in general enough that we can still yeah, use it. Yeah, but what it. if it more... doesn't? What if it really doesn't line up? Well then, like anything, you tackle the problems as they arise. You get together some leaders, some people who are at the top who own things, and then you start figuring out the ideas that are going to help move forward. And yeah, move but then what that. if they make bad decisions too, and their ideas move us backwards? If that happens, then these commanders, they're going to have a very keen eye for... What if they don't? What if their eyes are unkeen? Well, that's possible. But if this group... And now, this is the thing. It's an iterative process. What if they're process. drunk on power and their eyes are blurry? Well, we'll pay them a lot to make sure that they stay focused on the work at hand because it requires so much high cognitive effort. They likely won't be involved in alcoholism. What if the wealth itself functions like a drug of a sort where their ability to make decisions is, is hindered directly by the power they have over others. Even if that is the case, I think it's the ethical and right choice to have vertically led organizations. There's gonna be a lot of challenges along the way, but it's worth it because it's right. We're not trying to do the easiest thing in the world. We're trying to do what's right. What if it's more right to let people participate? It's not. So what we're proposing is unfair jobs, stratified jobs that split up a lot of the hard work on certain people and some of the easier work to other people. And it's entirely vertically planned and people are not paid based on effort. They're paid by sort of a random collection of say like circumstance and like social position and the, the whims of these commanders. 
what if the unfairness of that situation causes resentment? The, the morale, I recognize this, the morale issue. The morale issue is actually interesting. If people have low morale from being in an environment that's stratified and unfair and stuff like that, it's an interesting, it's a valid question. So it's our view, if people express any sort of political or organizational expression in the workplace about how things could be better, they're fired. So you use the threat of firing people because people always know that they could be fired at any time to keep a level of sort of subservient obedience. Um, and of course, that's going to be against the backdrop of a more general societal desperation. So between those things, I think we can really tackle the morale issue. Okay, so you're all these points, you're bringing them together. But what if in the end, some people don't have enough of what they need? I, I would propose just to not deal with that. That's something that's outside of our circle of concern. You need to, what's the old phrase goes, you need to, we need the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's what non-participatory economics is all about. So have I systematically addressed all of your objections? Are you ready to fully sign on? Uh, no. Well, that's too bad because I've convinced a very specific 20% of the people. Non-participatory economics. Proud sponsor of Seriously Wrong. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, uh, in terms of market planning versus participatory planning versus central planning, like the idea with markets is that you can kind of offload a lot of this data of like trying to figure out how much to produce and who gets what by just like who can afford to pay for it and how much can we afford to produce the exchange of money kind of makes all these decisions for us in like that's the mythology anyway but when we start talking about workers councils and neighborhood councils and directly democratic ways of managing society i think for a lot of people it can be very hard to imagine what that would actually look like and like if we're talking about the factory that is polluting in order to increase their output or uh, make it easier for them to make more stuff with less work or less costs to themselves you could imagine that a workers' council at a factory might also have that incentive to want to pollute if they're not the ones being affected by the pollution and whatnot. So I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering how you envision the various people with interests in all of these things coming together through these council structures to make these decisions, like some of the mechanics there, what that actually looks like. Right. It's a good but large question. Let me just preface it with one thing. Our notion that markets are somehow efficient, and as you say, they get the decisions made without wasting a lot of time, et cetera, et cetera. It has nothing to do with reality. It is not the reality. Here's one indication that it's not the reality. In the United States nowadays, 40% of produced food is uneaten. 40%. Right. So what we have is a situation where markets are getting decisions made, but they're not getting decisions made efficiently, whereby efficiently we mean fulfilling people's needs and developing their potentials without wasting things we value. Rather, they're getting things done by efficiently, where efficiently now means generating wealth, profits 
for owners, right, without disrupting the system by which the owners are able to accrue that wealth. That's what efficiency is in a market system. It has nothing to do with the well-being or the development of the population, nor with not wasting things the population values. All right. So the question is totally fair. The question is basically, what are you replacing markets with? What are you replacing central planning with? And what does it look like? Well, it's a big question, but basically it's like this. We said that having gotten rid of the owners in the workplace, we need to have some mechanism for the workers to make decisions. And we called it a workers council. And the decisions would be self-managed, which means that workers would have a say in them in proportion to the degree that they are affected. So if you have a worker's team or work team or a team in the workplace, and it's making a decision about how it's apportioning its internal time, it's the time of the members of the team and so on, and how the team is operating. And if it's doing that in context of broader decisions about how much the workplace is going to produce and so on, well, then that decision is overwhelmingly just the team. And the team might decide it by one person, one vote, or it might decide it by consensus, or it might decide it. It uses a technique, a voting algorithm, if you want, a voting procedure chosen to try and convey input in proportion as degree people are affected. But your bigger question, I think, is, um, okay, we have a workplace and we have consumers and what the consumers want and what the workplaces produce have to come into proximity of each other, pretty close proximity of each other. And how does that happen, right? In market system, it happens by buyers and sellers competing. They each try to fleece the other. But in the end, what's bought is sold, what's sold is bought, and bargaining power determines the distribution of the benefits, so to speak. In central planning, what's bought is sold and what's sold is bought But the results, the amounts are basically imposed by the central planners. In participatory planning, what happens is workers' councils and consumers and consumers' councils, because sometimes consumption is collective. The neighborhood is consuming something for the neighborhood. So that's the consumption council as compared to I'm personally consuming something or in our family, we're consuming something. Okay, so you have consumers and producers. And Participatory planning very roughly is the producers make a proposal for what they would like to do. That's all the workers' councils, each making a proposal. The consumer councils, the individuals and the the neighborhoods and so on, make proposals for what they want. Each basically uh, hears, hears in quotes, receives information about the totality of the proposals, the sum of all the proposals. And each then refines their proposals in light of that circumstance. And then that happens again, and it happens again. So it happens for a number of iterations, let's say five to seven, that's what it looks like it would take. And then you have what's produced coming into proximity with what's consumed. All right, but why don't producers just say they don't want to produce much, they want to produce next to nothing? Or why don't consumers say they want to consume a ton? Well, it's because on the producer side, this is starting to get a little complicated, but but the basics of it are clear enough. On the producer side, the hundred of us have a firm, like we said earlier. And what does that mean? That means we've have we're using the building. 
We're using resources. We're using tools and equipment from the productive commons. In essence, we're saying to society, we want to use all that stuff to produce, let's say, bicycles, whatever it might be, to produce bicycles. And so remember I said that people were going to be remunerated for the uh, duration, intensity, and onerousness of their socially valued labor. Well, if we're producing insufficiently, we're producing not enough bicycles given the number of us working and the equipment that we're working with and the resources that we're utilizing, then we're not doing socially valuable labor. But if we're producing sensibly, efficiently, we're using the materials properly, then we are. And so in the second case, we get full income for what we're doing. In the first case, we wouldn't because we wouldn't be doing socially valued work. It's, it's sort of like if I went into my backyard and dug holes and filled them in and said, look, I'm working strenuously, long hours under horrible conditions. I have my kids shoot a hose at me and I want big income for that. Well, the problem is nobody wants what I'm producing. It's worthless. If I say I want to be the, you know, the point guard for a professional basketball team, I can't because nobody wants that. Nobody, it has no social value. Same thing if a workplace proposes to do less than what is warranted by the number of workers and the equipment and the resources and so on. Now, if you go over to the consumer side, as a consumer, I am also a worker, unless I'm unable to work, in which case I get a full income. But let's say I am a worker, I get an income for the work that I do, for how long I work, how hard, and the owner's conditions and so on. And so I get an income, and that's my budget. So I can make a proposal for what I'm going to consume, but I can't propose more than my budget, right? I can only so I I don't have the option of of proposing a ton. And what's happening in the course of participatory planning is workers are are adapting their proposals in light of what's going on throughout the planning process as are consumers, and workers are trying to utilize what they are essentially borrowing from society, the resources and the equipment and so on, to utilize those in socially responsible ways, because otherwise they won't get full income. And consumers are trying to utilize their income in ways that fulfill them in light of changing prices and so on, changing valuations. And so, you know, nobody hearing this should take what I just said as a compelling argument that Participatory planning can replace markets and central planning. That's a reason to go look at the book and to go look at a, you know, a more careful and step-by-step development of the structure. But the claim is that participatory planning, instead of pitting buyers against sellers in a vicious competition, which basically creates a rat race in which nice guys finish last, it's advantageous to be an ass. It's advantageous to dump your garbage on other people, et cetera. And, and finally, one of the things that you asked in context of the discussion was, okay, whatever this participatory planning thing is, how is it the case that it doesn't involve people trying to aggrandize themselves way beyond what uh, you know we would, we would deem a responsible form of activity or of behavior? And the answer to that is you can't. Because your income is a function of how long, how hard, and how onerous the conditions are of socially valued labor, 
you, you know, there's only so much that you can earn like everybody else. And if you don't do socially valued labor, if you shirk, if you propose to work less, that's okay because maybe you want the leisure, in which case it's fine. But you can't have the leisure and the income too. And on the other side of the coin, you can't overconsume. You can't consume beyond your income, which is either, you know, a typical average income if you're not unable to work for some reason. Like, for instance, all kids get an average income. On all who are too infirm to work get an average income. And, of course, there are various free goods like medical goods and so on. But after that, there's this constraint that you be equitable, that you be just, that you be responsible. And so you make proposals that are responsible. And the net result is there, there is no such thing as, well, just to give you another example of it, um, in current society, if you're a master thief, you know, literally a master thief, you're, you're good at stealing. And so you steal and you successfully do it and you get rich. And there's no way, you know, for to, to sort of see your result, your richness, and deduce from that that you're a cheat, that you're a thief, that you are irresponsible or antisocial. Can't deduce that. But in a in a good economy where people's incomes are equitable, even if I was a master thief, I can't rob all this stuff and then be rich because nobody can be rich. You can be a little more or a little less wealthy because you choose to work longer or harder or less long or less hard because you'd rather have the leisure, but you can't be rich. And so the inclination to try and enrich self way beyond justice, right, can't be fulfilled. It, it's, it, it's, this is what it means to have a set of institutions which have certain implications. That's one of the implications. Solidarity is an implication. Diversity is an implication. Self-management is a fundamental implication. So these are implications of the institutions. Now, you know, this is a quick presentation and, you know, I hope people will, I hope people will have the following sort of reaction. Either this guy's crazy or maybe he's right or even just nearly right. And if he's right or even just nearly right, and there exists a way to conduct our economic lives that would have no bosses, that would have everybody enjoying fulfilling circumstances and you know alienation gone and the production of garbage gone and vast wealth gone and so on. If that's true, that's worth knowing. That's worth investigating to see if it's true. And so I hope people will take a look and, and decide for themselves. And, uh, you know, is it, it, does this vision have legs? Is it worthy and workable or is it not? And actually, if it's not, then you should spend time trying to figure out one that is because we need an economic goal. But I think it is viable. Yeah, something I really like about, I mean, what you're articulating and also in the book, I mean, it is very complex, uh, but it's also very open and iterative, you know, guided by values. And it's not a blueprint to say this is exactly everything is going to be in this place in this way. Um, and we can predict the future. Uh, it's guided by values, this sort of iterative 
process of like one thing we've joked about on the show before is sometimes when you talk about making the world a better place, people will ask you for the elevator pitch for world peace, like explain every aspect of this society because, uh, but obviously that same demand is never put on people who advocate for the current system. Oh, explain everything about how this current system works. Explain how it's going to deal with all the ins and outs of every potential ethical outcome of it. But I mean, that being said, blueprint I, I feel like you do a very admirable job of explaining some of these you know you get objections and you work through what it means to to have that objection and how to address that and it raises new problems and new questions and that process i feel like is a very valuable thing and it's, it's very valuable to root yourself in that contingency and complexity in a way that's not it's not a, it can't be as simple as a slogan to redesign society uh, we can try but there's always going to be some descriptive process that follows that and problem solving that comes from that. So yeah, there's something I really liked about the book is that it sort of builds up from principles and addresses different concerns and builds this layered argument of here's a way that we could do it. Here's a variety of ways that we could do it within the spectrum. On that note, do you want to articulate a little bit more about what some of these motivating values are? And you've, you've mentioned some of them, but what ethical basis should we be thinking of while we're trying to evaluate the, the many problems that would come up through the implementation of an alternative economic system? Yeah, like you say, I don't think there's a single right answer. So I think somebody else could be on the show and could list four or five values, and they might not even overlap that much with the ones I'll give in a minute. And yet they would they would work well, right? But for me, what makes sense when, when Robin Hanel and I were first doing this this economic vision, we did start with values. And so we said to ourselves, well, what does an economy do? One thing it does is it impacts the way that we make decisions and the, the amount of say that we have over decisions. And when we thought about that, we decided that self-management was the value we believed in for that, that it wasn't you know, a particular approach to decision-making like majority rule or consensus, but it was instead an aspiration, a value that people should have a say in decision in proportion to the degree they're affected. And so that became one of the linchpins of how we would think about institutions. Does mar Do markets deliver that? Does central planning deliver that? Does the corporate division of labor deliver that? And so on. The answer is no, all those cases are no. And so what we need is a set of institutions that would deliver that. And then we also thought, well, you know, an, a, a, an economy affects the way people regard each other. It affects the interrelations between people. And what's our value for that? And this one was completely uncontroversial, I think. It's solidarity. People should have some degree of, of concern for one another, some degree of empathy instead of antisociality. Of course, what we have now is institutions which are incredibly good at crushing the human natural sentiment to care about other humans and replacing it with antisociality, replacing it with the kind of rat race circumstance in which we we try to get ahead at other people's expense. And another value that made sense to us was, well, economies affect what we get, how much we get, right? What our share of the social product is. And for that, we thought, well, we don't want it to be a function of how much we own. That's ridiculous. Um, but we also don't want it to be a function of bargaining power you get what you can take that's like a thug's economy we don't want that that's what we have by the way you don't want it to be a function even of how much we each produce and this was more controversial so 
In other words, if I'm born, if I'm LeBron James, I'm born with inborn attributes, which are incredibly valued by society. And they are. I mean, some leftists don't want to admit that, but people like watching LeBron James play ball at a tremendously high level. So if we say that we want to remunerate for for the output that people contribute by their actions to the social good, that's a problem. Because that means we want, say, LeBron James's income to be even more than it is. Right now, he has the bargaining power to take a tremendous income, right? Tens of millions of dollars a year. But, but he doesn't take the value of everything he produces. Nike takes some of it. The owners of the of the Lakers now take some of it. The TV networks take some of it because they have enough power to take parts of it. So what we decided was, you know, the thing that people can control and the thing that it seems to make sense that people get remunerated for is how long they work, how hard they work, and the onerousness of the conditions under which they work. And then we realized, but wait, the work has to be socially valued. And those are the values that we build the whole system around. And just to say something about what you prefaced by saying, which I very much appreciated in your saying and that you you saw it that way, the book tries to present the key institutions that seem to us necessary to have a classless self-managing economy. And and those were the, the ones I mentioned earlier, just five things. And to see that as a kind of scaffold on which a whole economy is constructed. And that whole economy emerges from practice and from experience and and from different preferences. Um, each each workplace isn't the same as every other workplace. Each neighborhood isn't the same, um, and each country won't have an economy that's exactly the same. That's even true under capitalism, right? So capitalism in the old social democratic uh, uh, Sweden say was different than capitalism in the old apartheid South Africa, was different in, than, than capitalism in the United States, and so on. Various differences occur. Could be because country you know, was colonialist or colonized. Could be because the country has a different level of technical development. Could be because of, of attributes of other parts of society that impact the economy. So No Bosses tries to put forward what it calls a scaffold, and it tries to do it, you're right again, in a, by, by a manner that basically is sort of taking it step by step and trying to discern, I guess, what is necessary in order to fulfill those values. What do you have to do about allocation, about the division of labor, about remuneration, about, you know, about the various key factors in the economic life so that the economy actually fulfills those values. And so it's classless. And I left out one value, but it's because it is it is, or it should be so obvious, which is sustainability. And again, what does it have to do so that it is sustainable, so that it pays attention to ec- ecological implications? We think that participatory economics has those virtues and what what I would say is, if we've been wrong at some point in the development of the idea of the institutions, fine, it needs to be corrected. Because the reality is, we do absolutely need to have a vision of an alternative economy 
so that we can orient our activity, our activism, our organizing, our development of new organization and institutions, so that they will reach what we desire, rather than, as has often happened historically, being courageous and effective and even successful, but winning something other than what we desire. We need to know where we're going. Papa and boy. <laughs> Digging holes and filling them back in. That's what a dad's gotta do. <laughs> oh. Bring you with the hose, Dad. <laughs> Keep it coming, boy. Oh, got stings in the eye. <laughs> Look, we've got great water pressure. The way it pushes in your cheek. That's perfect, boy. We need to. Just like we said, remember, it's payment in our society is based on doing intense and onerous work. Awful conditions. The worst conditions, the better. It's freezing, boy. I'd fill up that hole just like it was before I started. Papa, how come you get paid for this? Even though the whole, at the end of the day, it's the same. And we just wasted a lot of water. <laughs> oh, fuck. Sorry. I swore. It just really hurts. That means I'm doing it right. Right, Papa? That's right, boy. I'm proud of you. Well, we live in a pair-econ society that doesn't care if the work's socially productive or not. It doesn't matter that no one cares about this whole. It doesn't matter that no one wants me to do this. Just me deciding to do this is enough. And so I work long hours doing intense work in worse and more onerous conditions. That's going to make my wage go up. So you're paying for your college right now as you spray me with that cold, cold, high-speed water as I dig these holes. Papa and boy... It's been really great talking to you today, and the ideas in the book are fantastic, really stimulating to read. I have one last question here. Uh, you've been involved in this kind of work for decades. While the majority of our listeners have much less experience, and some of them are just getting started out and doing politics for the first time, doing activism, I was curious if you had any thoughts on things that they should look out for as they go forward, any advice, things based on your experience over the years that you know newer activists should keep in mind. You know, I could go on for a long time about that. And you would hope that somebody in my position could do that and be intelligent about it. I'm not sure I can guarantee that. But let me say one thing. And uh, let me also suggest another book. I did write a memoir, and it does talk about from the 60s to the present, or even earlier than the 60s to the present. And it tries to do exactly what you just asked me to do. It tries to look at the situations and the unfolding circumstances and the people and so on, and discern lessons that are relevant now. And so if I did that at all well, it might be serviceable to some of your listeners. It's called uh, Remembering Tomorrow. Here's one thing. When I was much, much younger, but you know, not just getting started 10 years in, 15 years in, I would often be questioned by people in school who would basically ask me what they should do. And what I would say is what you should not do is try to figure out what is the most important thing to do. And then regardless of your own inclinations, do that. There's two problems with that. It's courageous, it's committed, but there are two problems. One problem is we don't know what's most important to do. And anybody who says they do is just spinning a tail, so to speak. But second, even if we did know what was most important to do, doing that, despite your disinclination to do that, 
despite not having the qualities that are associated with doing that well, is not a good choice. So what I would say to people is, think of a whole range of things that are valuable to do, and inside that range of things, look and see what you think you could do well and sustainably. You could do it well because of whatever attributes you bring to the task, and you could do it sustainably because you would get fulfillment along the way. You wouldn't be constantly miserable doing this thing. So that was one kind of piece of advice. And there was a second piece of advice that I remember sharply, because many people would ask me, should I go to law school? Uh, I want to become a movement lawyer, and so I want to go to law school. And I would say, it depends. If you think that going to law school is going to be just a automatic step to becoming a progressive or revolutionary lawyer, and the, there's no real hurdle except, you know, sort of being able to pass the tests, then no, you shouldn't do it. Because the reality is that entering professions involves an extreme level of socialization, an extreme level of molding. And if you go into such an, an environment thinking it could never affect you, it will affect you. You have to go in afraid of it. You have to go in consciously realizing that you have to you have to beat it and in order to beat it you need people around you to support you and with whom you can get a degree of sustenance and so on and if that's all rare and if you're prepared and if you understand that you are susceptible just like the i don't know how many lawyers there are hundreds of thousands of lawyers just like all those who thought that they were going into it and who thought that they were going to be socially committed when they came out and who weren't. And so you have to understand that process and be able to work against that process. You know, it's a long struggle and you have to simultaneously be concerned to do good, let's call it, to contribute to social change in a manner that's commensurate to your to what you bring to the task. At the same time, you have to look out for your own well-being and have others look out for your own well-being so that you can keep the energy that you need, keep the positive attitude that you need. Let me just give you one more example. Back in those days, back in 1970, 71, say, already out of school, a number of people who I knew who had gone to college and who were headed toward the coordinator class if they followed the path that had been outlined for them, so to speak, they knew they didn't want to do that. But a number of them decided, look, the most important thing to do is to move into a working class neighborhood with a few other people in some kind of a, of a house, right, and uh, organize. And they were right that it was a very, very valuable and important thing to do. But the problem was various people tried to do that who just were not suited to doing it. They were incapable of communicating with the people in the neighborhood. They were incapable of enduring the circumstances that you had to endure. And so their desire was fine, but their implementation was not fine. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm describing that you need to find something to do that is suited to your to, to yourself and to, to what you are able to and want to provide. And if you do that, then you can be a uh, 
a participant and a contributor. And I would say for as long as I have, but I would hope that we'll be making big headway and it will be um, much easier in uh, some years from now than it has been (laughs) for the period that I've lived through. Well, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. That makes a lot of sense. And um, it's a good lens from which to think about it. Because, yeah, you often have that sort of prescriptive lefty kind of what is the most like I'm going to tackle everything yeah. in the universe, starting with the most important first and then work my way down. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And what you should really do is if you could make that list, you should look at the list and go down from the top, not choosing each one, but going down until you find one that you will be comfortable at and good at and then do that, not the ones above it. Yeah, so that was our interview with Michael Albert. The book is No Bosses, A New Economy for a Better World. Really interesting stuff there. There's a bunch of things that came up in our conversation that have sort of stuck with me since we talked about it. Little arguments for democratization. Really interesting. Yeah, I really appreciate the level of depth that he's able to go into on these questions when you ask him about something specifically. Something else that I really like about Michael Albert too is a lot of the ideas themselves are framed in terms of anticipated criticisms. I feel like that's something we do a lot on the show too is like we have this critic on our shoulder that we're constantly arguing about but then like we use that to articulate our position in the first place is like we're having this imaginary argument. But I can imagine from you know his years experience that these are all real arguments that he's had over and over again with a variety of people. Right, right, yeah. It's like, and you might say X, but actually, why? Yeah, I've seen also him in talks or like Q&As where someone's like, what about this? And he's like, that's a good question. But the really hard question is, and then he'll just like take their criticism and bring it up to the next level. He's like, this is the real challenge. You know, I love that kind of shit. Right. Where like someone criticizes your idea and you're like, no, 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 no. That's barely a criticism compared to what you could say. This is really what fucks with my idea. And here's my response to it. Yeah, I thought uh, maybe here at the end of the episode, we could talk about Pericon's vision and how it can complement or contradict the visions that we've talked about on the show in the past, library socialism. I mean, I think at the top level, one of the biggest points of agreement, and I, I think important, it's like a meta discussion to have about politics in general that I really appreciate about Pericon is it's built on the idea that by trying to describe and design an ideal society to some degree, by putting out that sort of utopic vision of how an economy could be structured for everyone, that it creates a guidepost. It could be an iterative process where it's not, say, like a sparkling, perfect, unchangeable blueprint, but it's like a guidepost that you can use to change your trajectory and then create future iterations based on the roadblocks you run into and stuff. On that really fundamental level, I so strongly agree with the Pericon vision that there's value in doing this. It's one of the things that I like about Pericon the most is the, the depth and structure and internal consistency of this as one particular vision of a better society to move towards. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about it that I feel like it shares with my ideas of library socialism in a broad sense is the vision of mutually interlocking levels of democratic bodies that can work both in the sphere of economics and in the sphere of 
politics and municipal politics, local politics in various ways. And that worker control of the means of production is good and necessary, but also what workers are doing and what they're producing isn't just their decision. It's part, it's enmeshed in a bigger system where everybody in society needs to have a say in these things because it impacts all of us, not just the externalities of production, but the decisions of what and how to produce things. Definitely. Yeah. And that's, that's also something I really appreciate about Pericon. The, the concept of say like consumer councils, political councils and workers councils and how these things are layered and interact with each other. That fits in really well with how I imagined a, an idea democracy for lack of a better term layered democracy like layered democracy you know workplace democracy consumer democracy political democracy and then in each of those there could be different types of layers as well like the real trick is figuring out how do these different layers interact with each other how do you um, differentiate the decision-making powers of different bodies and how they interrelate and how they confederate together and those are authentically challenging questions that need to be worked out, but ideally worked out in practice, not yeah, purely think, in the realm of imagination. Yeah, I think it's good to have a vision, an imagination vision, but yeah, you're definitely going to have to, once the rubber hits the road or whatever, you have to like start actually figuring out what is working and what isn't working and adjust on the fly and not just try to realize some very particular vision. I assume he would agree with that as well. Yeah, and on that front, just as a side note, I think approaching these iterative processes scientifically, one of the ways to do that is to do, say, like pilot projects, trial runs of smaller things, um, do like A-B testing where you try two slightly different ways of arranging things, two different but similar contexts, and then compare the results and so on. That sort of experimentalism, I think, is key to the process of actualizing a much better society, what we call library socialism. Yeah, and in terms of differences between the Paracon vision and my ideal vision of a future society, I mean, the biggest one is ideally I would like to not have money and not have things cost things. And I mean, that's the kind of the whole idea of library socialism is that when you need things, you go to the library and take them out. And if there's not enough, there might be a wait list or we have to produce more. But that's all done through the systems of production and decision making and stuff going back uh, so that we have enough of the things we need for everyone who needs them when they need them ideally, most of the time. I think that that kind of property relation of sharing common goods uh, is going to be more useful for most things than a vision of property that has still has people being given money for their work and then exchanging that money for items that they then own. But I could easily see hybrids of these systems worked out where more luxury goods are more done in a sort of commodity you can purchase them way whereas all basic goods are done under library socialism and more and more things could be incorporated in that over time i don't see them necessarily as fully conflicting visions but in terms of like imagining the ideal end outcome of society i think it would be better if we were able to fully go usufructian property rights Totally. I'm in the same boat. To the highest degree possible, I think we should strive to remove exchange relationships from most people's day-to-day -day lives. But I'm willing to concede that in a transitionary sense or in a pragmatic sense, there could be room for point exchanges. 
for a variety of reasons as these processes worked out. It could be that increasing participation in economics is like developmental stages that help move towards that end. Um, I could also imagine a scenario where the average person doesn't deal with money in their day-to-day life, but the system functions in some way in the back end using exchanges of various kinds for pragmatic reasons, have money fade into the background as a bureaucratic mechanism while the average person doesn't actually have to deal with it. Um, that makes sense to me as well when I imagine sort of an iterative long-term process. I Yeah, I don't like to be really like dogmatic about any of this, but that is my preference as well, that the when I'm envisioning a perfected society to the highest degree possible. Something that we agree on, I think, it, the premise of having no bosses, the abolition of bosshood, it's something that I see as not only a desirable end, but as like a is one of the necessary ends towards creating a democratic society. Yeah, I feel like it's one of the first things we should do. And like maybe that, I mean, probably wouldn't sound extreme to our listeners, but uh, to any hypothetical person to whom that seems extreme, you know, worker co-ops, we should change workplaces from non-democratic, totalitarian, boss at the top, giving orders to everyone, to cooperatively, democratically run institutions where everybody has an equal say, no matter who they are, is something that is eminently feasible in the world right now. Even within some type of capitalism, you can have worker cooperatives. And you could even technically like make a law saying everyone has to be a worker cooperative. Some people might say that's already socialism if you do that. I'd be kind of iffy on that. Like it's made, it's more socialist for sure. Um, but I think I just fully agree. Bosses got to go. Uh, <laughs> and I think more money-based economics is a potential transition to a more full library socialist accessing what you need type economics. I can see that as a kind of spectrum, as a minimal and maximal kind of asks in a way. But to me, like not having bosses is on the more minimal end of the ask in terms of like what we need to do to actually make deep structural changes in society. Obviously, there's more minimal things you can do, like better worker protections, higher minimum. There's lots of like sock demi stuff you can do. But in terms of like actual deep structural changes, I feel like eliminating the boss role and making workplaces democratic is like key and core. Uh, and it's why I really appreciate so many of the different ideas that are out there from like Richard Wolf, Michael Albert, all these kinds of things. I feel like it's a, it's a really strong core to recognize that that relationship, the employer employee relationship is unjust and there should be no bosses. Another thing Pericon gets really right, in my opinion, is the abolition of ownership of workplaces. And I think it, there's a real complementary relationship here with what we've talked about in terms of library socialism, in that, you know, when we talk about the abolition of, of abusus property relations, that is like the command and control ability to destroy things that you own in favor of uh, socially mediated use of fructian property relations like the lending library, the logic behind that whole sphere that we go into in detail in other episodes, our library socialism trilogy, for example, applies also really strongly to like firms. So if a firm is owned by someone, technically that person has the ability to destroy the firm. The firm can stop doing what they're doing at the beck and call of this individual person. Whereas like a more democratic understanding of the firm would place that decision in the hands of the workers and not just a narrow band of workers at the top, you know, the commanding class, but the actual workers. So I see a continuity there between that premise and Perry Econ 
um, and the premises of changing and modifying property relations as we've talked about in library socialism. And yeah, I see there being sort of like three qualitative, at least three qualitative features that represent the transition that we're aiming for with library socialism. To pick up on something that Michael Albert said, he talked about um, how you can have a qualitative revolution in the relations of people and the relations within society, and that it might not be, and that might not involve cannons firing, it might not involve storming the parliament or whatever, but it's a meaningful revolution in the sense that the qualitative relationships between peoples and things have changed. And I see there being at least three of those in relation to library socialism that we've identified so far, one of which is the abolition of bosshood, not just in the workplace, but in a larger sense in society. The idea of like rulership and command and control is something that needs to be abolished in order to have this qualitative change. The second, the abolition of abuses, the implementation of usufructian property relations, that is property relations which are socially mediated, that are about use and benefit of things, but not their destruction, as we've expounded in detail elsewhere. And the third of which is the abolition of the worker. I'm trying to think of a way to say this that doesn't isn't going to rub some people the wrong way, because I think it's a very approachable idea is the abolition of proletarian identity. Not as something like, oh, I identify as a proletarian. That's fine. Actually, probably even a good thing, given the economy that we live in. But the actual qualitative features of what it means to be a proletarian is that you have nothing to sell except for your labor and time. That you are effectively trapped. In order to survive, you must sell your labor and time to bosses. That's a problem. So I think in order to abolish that, we need to create mechanisms, and whether that's through universal basic services, universal basic income, or as we've called it in the show, universal basic outcome, which could be any mixture between those things. You need to give people the meaningful choice to not work. You need to give people the meaningful choice to do things other than sell their time and labor. So if you do those three things, abolish abuses, abolish bosshood, abolish proletarians, <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like some horrible thing or something. I just don't know how else to say it. I mean, you could say usufruct complementarity and the irreducible minimum that's another way to say those three things right right yeah so yeah check out the library <laughs> socialism series if you haven't already but yeah i mean we are pro imagining better futures on the show and we say the more the merrier so i mean unless your idea of a better future is like horrible in some way like everybody has to drink a ton of milk every day Right, more milk uh, and, than and we have to like ever breed way, way more cows and do way more and factory ways, farming. Yeah. And, you know, a gallon a day, everybody, or you're in jail or something. Like, if that was your vision of a better future, it's not the more the merrier. And if you spill it, you have to cry, otherwise you go to jail. <laughs> you have to cry and sweep it back up into the carton unsafely, and it's hoof. What's wrong, comrade? Are you not sad about spilling your milk? Clicking gun sound effect. <laughs> oh, no, I'm so sad. <laughs> Let me uh, feeling your eyes. I yeah. feel no tears. I'm dry. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're watering now, but that's probably just because of my finger. I can tell from taste if it's tears of sadness or if it's forced tears of a little bit of acting. All right, you're safe this time. But yeah, I mean, as long as it's not that or anything else horrible envisioning a better future we're gonna to have to envision a lot of different better futures in order to chart the course towards an actually realizable better future so massive appreciation to michael albert and his collaborators in creating paracon uh for for doing that over the course of decades it's it's really a great project 
thanks again to Michael Albert for coming on the show um, and sharing uh, his ideas with us. It's extremely stimulating food for thought. It is uh, soil for the plants of new ideas to grow in. It is, it's fertile soil for imagining better, more desirable futures and worth, I think, taking very seriously as uh, an intellectual contribution to the sort of socialist project. Um, and thanks again to everyone for listening and giving us your time and attention today to think about these important issues. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, and I hope that you're all, you're all doing well as we, what are we going into year three of the pandemic now? Uh, I don't know. Yes. No. <laughs> I think we are. Uh, yeah. Thanks everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Bye now. Bye. See ya. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you. Next time on Seriously Wrong, we go to Wrong Burger to keep up with the antics of that family business. Hey everybody, Boss here. Boss is back. Hip, 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 gather around. Boss is here. Have an announcement. <clears throat> hey. Hey, hey. You, I remember we had a conversation the other day. Yeah, yeah my you. break. Best break of your life, am I right? All right, so first I just want to thank you all for such great work. You're amazing. We've had great margins this year. You know, the economy is doing bad, but the company has been doing great. And that's all thanks to you. Thank you all so much for that. I wanted to say that first. And also, I wanted to say that we have been listening to what our workers are saying. You're struggling. Cost of living going up. There's so much inflation right now. Minimum wage doesn't get you what it used to. You know, that's what we've been hearing from you all, that's tough. And, you know, when things get tough for our employees in the upper management sphere, we say, let's put our heads together. Let's do something about it. Uh, this was the subject of our last meeting. And I just said, you know what, let me talk to accounting. Let me talk to payroll. Let's see what we can shift around. Let's see what money we can free up. You know, we're a family here. We want to do something about it. So to show our appreciation... We want to announce that for each and every employee in the business, top to bottom, effective immediately, we are announcing a pizza party. So excited. We wanted to say thank you. We wanted to show you how much we appreciate your work. Uh, during this difficult time, this difficult pandemic. Now, we did look into gluten-free and cheese-free vegan options, and those were a bit too expensive. So, yeah, if you have any praise for me, let's hear it. Oh, and just while you're thinking of the praise, ABCs, always be cleaning. Um, it really kind of seemed like you were thinking about giving us a raise. Is that something that's being considered? Uh, well, we do uh, have regular review processes every six months already where we um, often give raises to many of our most productive employees. I believe you yourself just got a seven cent raise. Yeah, seven cents doesn't really buy that much. Well, but it's over the course of many hours. Right, right? no, but even just if you just do the math on that, do you have a calculator in your in your office? They have a calculator on YouTube? No, there's no calculator on YouTube. No, listen, we're understaffed. Some of us work seven days a week. That's a lot of hours in which to make seven cents. Right, but look, we don't have to put up with this. 
uh, you all, please don't listen to him. You look like you're listening too much. And you do have to keep putting up with this. I'm sorry. Uh, it is what it is. And No, it is not what it is. Kind of is, though. No, it isn't. Hey, you're jeopardizing our pizza party. That's Oh, I just heard someone else, not me, say. No, that was that, that was you. I don't, you no. were saying it on the side of your mouth. We all no. saw. You did the little thing with your hand, the back of your hand facing your mouth. I don't think so. No one does that just when they're not talking. I was yawning. You're yawning into the back of your hand at the same time that a voice that we can't identify the source of was agreeing with you. (laughs) I'm just saying that the people want pizza. No, what are you doing? You can't drag me closer to the oil. I don't. Let's very slightly burn his hands. No, no. Ow, that does sting. Ouch. Yeah, we've been trying to get protection against that for like forever. Uh, You're all fired. Let's get him! Okay, stop, stop, stop. Stop, stop. I'll give you all a raise. Everyone here right now, current workers, right now, raise for all of you four And so the workers at Wrongburger on 3rd Street successfully reorganized as a participatory economic organization, hiring more people, paying fair wages. And it wasn't like easy and straightforward. It wasn't actually that little revolutionary scenario sort of complicated that whole process. It took a long time to untangle some of the legal stuff. It's not, it wasn't as easy as that, although it was a great moment. Yeah, it took a lot of organizing to actually build democratic infrastructure that they used to begin running the company and like kind of setting things up again. It wasn't as simple as showing the boss what the fry oil feels like or kind of having a, a rupture moment where everything changed. It was more of a... Yeah, and there were steps forward, steps back, and they didn't have a whole blueprint. They, they, they had to work, you know, iteratively and experimentally step by step to figure out systems that work. But by gum, they did. Eventually, the wrong burger on 3rd Street became a truly fair and democratic institution where people split work fairly and were paid based on their labor. And from that, eventually... Eventually, a confederation of these non-owned cooperative firms were able to put political influence on society to move to a democratic, ecological, and participatory world. And that particular boss, because he kept trying to sabotage the operation during his shifts at the fry cook station... He had to be fired. He just he couldn't keep up with the work. He wasn't a great team player. Yeah, and coincidentally, that was the day they debuted their new burgers and fries that were healthy but tasted just as good. Yeah, the workers, once their imagination was freed from the shackles of the day-to-day labor, they were given enough money to live. Some of them started thinking about the big problems of burgers, how to move burgers forward, how to move fries forward, for not just their own firm, but for the whole of humanity. They were able to figure out just an incredible recipe that tastes just as good, but is also good for you. And they, they weren't able to do it until they set out with that goal in mind. It was an iterative process. It took a lot of different steps, experiments, and not every attempt to make a burger that tastes just as good, but as good for you worked. But eventually, the workers found it. The end. <laughs>